Let's turn together whoops, to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 21. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. And he said unto them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple, but if you had known what this means, I want to have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than the sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then said he to the man, Stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking wick shall he not quench, until he has brought forth judgment into victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your son that you sent, that reveals who you are, that you are well pleased in, that you chose to send and Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that you would, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and cause our ears and our eyes to see and hear the truth of who you are and what you want us to take away from this passage, Lord. Help us to understand what we read and see that we're not just reading the words of men, but the words of God. Thank you for who you are and what you mean to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, the case could easily be made that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, could be described as a conflict, as the conflict between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. You could, you could describe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a description of the conflict between Jesus Christ and the Pharisees, or the servant of the Lord, the one that God sent into the world, 
and the corrupt shepherds of Israel. You'll notice when you read all the Gospels, the, the, the conflict that is highlighted, or what is highlighted, is conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, we see in Matthew itself, the very first recorded teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it's basically Jesus teaching the people about uh, the truth and challenging them and correcting their views from how the Pharisees had taught them. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he explicitly names the Pharisees as, as false. He says you need to have a righteousness that's greater than them, and basically all their teachings um, are, are deficient, and they're a bunch of hypocrites. They just pray and do what they do um, to be seen of men. They're, they don't have a righteousness that is acceptable. When he said you need to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees to get into the kingdom of heaven, he was saying that the Pharisees and the scribes were not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is the teachings of Jesus. And A.B. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, he wrote, the radical antithesis between Jesus and the Pharisees lay in their respective ideas of God. That is that Jesus came with a very different understanding of who God is than the Pharisees. And the way he taught the people, he taught them a very different view of God than the Pharisees taught them. See, Jesus came and taught the people and showed the people that God was a God of mercy and a God of grace. The Pharisees, their view of God was essentially that God was a rewarder of the good. God was a rewarder of the good. That if you are good, he'll reward you. Jesus, he didn't explicitly deny that, but he said there's more to God than that. Sure, God is a rewarder of the good. But then he goes to the next step and says, are you good? Will he reward you? There's no one good. And there's more to be said about God than just that. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish scholar of the New Testament, he wrote, where, where fundamental principles were so directly contrary, the occasion for conflict could not long be wanting. So it's inevitable that they were going to have conflict. And we see this conflict, not only by the teachings of Jesus, but by the deeds of Jesus. And as we've seen in Matthew already, uh, conflict has arisen by what Jesus has said and done. Jesus comes to a man who's lame and he says, son, you're forgiven. And of course, this makes the Pharisees upset because that's contrary to their doctrine. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they said. They found fault in him. They found fault in Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. The Pharisees thought that if you were righteous and if you were going to be obedient to God and if you're going to do God's will, you would actually separate yourself from sinners. You would not befriend sinners. And yet they saw Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. That's actually a, a phrase of accusation that they said towards him. This man eats with sinners. And they basically said that as proof that he was, that he was false. They wouldn't dream of doing that. And also Jesus, in his lifestyle, in his manner, he came eating and drinking, wasn't like John the Baptist. And they found fault in that too. But the real source of it was their different understandings of God. And brothers and sisters, as we come to chapter 12, 
we're going to see that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is about to be intensified. In chapter 12, we hear from the first time that the Pharisees desire to put Jesus to death. Now, we see in chapter 12 that one of the main sources of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees had to do with the Sabbath. One of the main sources of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees had to do with the Sabbath. This, these two incidents that we read in Matthew 12 about the disciples eating the corn or the grain in the field and the healing of the man in the synagogue are recorded by both Mark and Luke as well. But you'll also find more incidents of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath in the Gospels, Luke 13, Luke 14, John 5, John 9, all separate incidences from these about conflict with Jesus and the Sabbath. And it's not because the Sabbath laws were more important to the Pharisees than others, although they were very important to the Pharisees, but that the, breaking the Sabbath was obvious and frequent. It's pretty hard to hide that, the fact that you're breaking the Sabbath, and you have a, every week you can do it, right? And Jesus basically just disregarded the rules that the Pharisees laid down concerning the Sabbath, and they had rules. Boy, did they have rules. I don't know how much you know about the way that the Pharisees and the, and the, the Jewish people, uh, how they see the Sabbath, now, many of us think, well, we don't need to keep the Sabbath today, or some think, well, we do need to keep the Sabbath today, but I would guess that whether you take, whatever side you take, you probably don't have a view of, of the Sabbath like the Pharisees did or the, or the Jews have, and many have today. For example, I'd like to describe to you a bit about how the Jewish people saw the Sabbath day, and many do, still do today. Um, it is said that the part about the Sabbath in the Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on their Torah. The, the part, the section about the Sabbath in the Talmud, it is said, is the most difficult part of the Talmud. And the Talmud is huge. And this is the most difficult and complicated part. The, day, the Sabbath is, is not so much a day of rest as it is a day of restrictions to ensure no labor. So, here's how a Sabbath would look like in Jesus' day and, uh, and after Jesus' day, as we learn from the Talmud. The Sabbath, although, you know how the Jewish day begins at when the sun goes down? Well, to ensure that no one would break the Sabbath by making a mistake in forgetting the time, it was enforced Friday afternoon. So even before the sun goes down, all labor was to stop, lest anyone make a mistake, lest you get too busy, you know, I just want to finish sewing this, a tailor might want to finish sewing up his whatever he's doing, and he, and he makes a mistake and goes over and breaks the Sabbath. So all labor stops well before the Sabbath actually begins. The food that you're going to eat on the Sabbath is prepared the day beforehand. You're not to prepare any food on the Sabbath day. You're not even to heat the food on the Sabbath day. So you prepare it beforehand, and you, you can put it in a warm place, but if it gets cold, so be it. You are not to make, do any work. You are not to heat the food. Uh, to show to the extent that they, they, this rule about food was, if, if you had eggs from a hen on Friday, you could eat them. If the hen laid an egg on Saturday, you could not eat the egg that the hen laid on the Sabbath. 
That was, that was off limits. That egg was off limits. On the Sabbath day, you were only allowed to travel about half a mile from your home. And when you, when you traveled on the Sabbath day, you were not to carry anything above the weight of a fig. Okay? So you're not to carry anything beyond the weight that is a fig. They, they felt that anything more than that would be carrying a burden. And you're not to carry any burdens on the Sabbath day. The clothes that you were supposed to wear on the Sabbath day were supposed to be light and not burdensome. So you're supposed to not wear any cumbersome clothing lest it be a burden. Women were not allowed to wear any jewelry on the Sabbath day. Uh, they were not to wear jewelry not only because it would be burdensome, because they were afraid that the woman might take the jewelry off and hold it in their hand and show it to other people. And that would be considered a burden. Women were not allowed to look in mirrors on the Sabbath day lest they see something in their, in their appearance that needs fixing and they fix it. And that is considered work on the Sabbath day. They literally say, unless they, lest they see a white hair and pluck it, which would be work on the Sabbath day. They have a major discussion in the Talmud about what happens if your sandal becomes unlatched on the Sabbath day. You are not allowed to fix it. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that because that is considered work. Yeah. They, there's exceptions for that. If you, if you if, Oh, if you have a baby, you could certainly take care of the baby because certainly. They actually say you can, you can pick up your children on the Sabbath day. Uh, but they have a discussion about, can you pick up your child if your child is holding something? They have a discussion about that. <laughs> um, you're not to benefit anything, because that would be considered work. You're not to kick a clod of dirt, because that would benefit the ground. Or pluck a blade of grass or a withered leaf from a tree. If you have to spit, you spit on a rock. You don't spit on the ground. If you have to dip a radish in salt, which you're allowed to do when you eat, you must not leave it in the salt for too long, lest it becomes a pickle. And that would be considered doing something or laboring on the Sabbath day. If your clothes get wet, you are not to wring them out. If your bone gets out of joint, you may not put it back into place. If you throw something in the air, it is a sin to catch it with the same hand, you may catch it with the other hand or in your mouth, and it is not a sin. <laughs> and on and on and on. <laughs> That's a tiny sampling of what it was like to obey the Sabbath, to do no work and to rest in the, in the mind of a Jewish person. God commands us to do no work. We must ensure that we do no work whatsoever. Now you can imagine, in the light of this, how the disciples and Jesus must have infuriated the Pharisees, right? Because here you got Jesus and the disciples ostensibly disregarding their commands. Jesus and the disciples are walking through a, a, a field, and the disciples are picking, they're actually picking the, the grains of wheat, which is a better translation than corn, and it says in Luke, they're rubbing them in their hands. That would also be considered work. And then they're, they're, they're eating them. So they're laboring. They're reaping and they're threshing. And that would have been unlawful in the 
minds of the Pharisees. Now, certainly the disciples would only have done this because of Jesus. Jesus must have taught them it was okay. Jesus must have given them permission or even set the example. And so they come to them and say, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath day. What they apparently think is unlawful. Now, look how Jesus answers the Pharisees. He gives two examples from the scriptures. Number one, he says, haven't you ever read uh, that David and the guys that were with him, they actually went into the temple, or the tabernacle at that time, but basically the same thing, and they ate the showbread that only the priests are supposed to eat, and that's unlawful. Don't you remember that? And of course they would have remembered that. He also points out, don't you know in, that in the law, there's supposed to be, a, uh, that there's work to be done on the Sabbath in the temple. Now the Sabbath is a day when you're supposed to do no work, and yet in the law it says that these ordinances and works are supposed to be done in the temple, and that included on the Sabbath day, and the priests would do it on the Sabbath day, where they would violate the Sabbath by doing temple work. Now, do Jewish uh, scholars make commentary on these portions of Scripture? Absolutely. But as Edersheim points out, who has studied these commentaries, he says, it's evident when you study the Jewish commentaries on these portions of Scripture about David eating from the, from the, uh, the tabernacle and the, and the priest breaking the Sabbath, that they don't have an understanding for the rationale of it. They don't really understand these portions of Scripture. How is it that David went in there and ate that? How is it that we can break the Sabbath by doing temple work? And it's explained in various different ways to make it lawful. Although Jesus says he does that which is unlawful. He ate what the priests were only supposed to eat. Some explain this, including Christians, by the argument of urgent necessity. Meaning, there's no other choice. That if you don't eat, you're going to die. And if there's only the... Uh, the, the showbread there, then David had to eat it or else he was going to die. Of course, that's not, that's not a good thing. And actually, Jewish people do say that you can actually set aside the Sabbath to save your own life. They do say that. Which is really interesting that they see that life is actually more valuable than the Sabbath. But the problem is, is that there's no sense of urgent necessity here. Did the disciples have to eat the, the grain when they were walking through the field, could they not have waited until, they, uh, until the Sabbath was over, until they got to someone's house and had a proper Sabbath meal? Or David, did he have to eat the showbread that was in the temple? Probably not. You can live quite a long time without food. And so he could have gone somewhere else to get food. And so Jesus' point here is not one of maybe the popular people's point, that it was just about urgent necessity. Jesus is saying something deeper than that. Jesus explains these incidents and the incident that is happening in his, at that time with his disciples by explaining that there's something greater than the Sabbath and there's something greater than the temple. He says, basically, David takes precedence over the tabernacle and the temple takes precedence over the Sabbath. You're not going to break the Sabbath. You're not going to break the temple laws 
to keep the Sabbath, right? So it is the Sabbath, but we are required to do work in the temple. You're not going to break the temple laws to keep the Sabbath because the temple laws are greater than the Sabbath laws. The temple is for man's good. The temple is for reconciliation with God and that the people would be right with God. You're not going to say, don't do what is good for man because it's the Sabbath. And what's the Sabbath all about? The Sabbath is about what is good for man. The Sabbath, Jesus says in Mark, in the same place, was not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. So the Sabbath is something that God gave to benefit man. Are we not going to do what is beneficial to man on a day that is to benefit man? I think of it like this. Imagine it's someone's birthday, and you go to them and say, you know what, this is your birthday, and we want to make this the best possible day for you. We want to do everything. We want to serve you. We don't want you to have to do any work today. We want you to relax and enjoy this day. And, and you know, whatever, whatever you want goes. We will do everything for you because this is your day. And the guy says, great, this is my day, all right. Um, well, you know what I'd love to do on my birthday is um, I'd love to have a game of baseball. Let's do it. Okay, that's great. You just sit right here and we'll go play a game of baseball. No, I want to play. No, no, because that would be you working. That would be you. We want, to have, we want you to relax today and enjoy yourself because this is your day. <laughs> but I want to play. No, that, that, you, let us do all that. That's the hard work. Let us do that. So it doesn't make any sense to say you can't do something you want to do on the day that's your day. The point of the Sabbath is for man and the temple is for man. The temple takes precedence over the Sabbath. It doesn't necessarily uh, contradict the Sabbath. It would contradict the Sabbath to not do the temple work on the Sabbath. And the same with David. David represents the Messiah. The temple is for man's good. The Messiah is for man's good. And the point of the temple is pointing to the Messiah. And so will we allow the Messiah to be trumped by that which points to him, Jesus says, there's one here that is greater than the temple. The whole point of the temple is for man's good. You're not going to let men go hungry for temple laws, are you? So David shows up with his men, because also there's men with him that aren't the Messiah, but they get to eat too. What is the rationale for this? And brothers and sisters, the rationale for this is sure we could send David and his men away hungry. I mean, the obvious part of the story is that there is no other food around in the city except for that, because the priest couldn't say, well, let's just go over to my house and eat. There was no other food. That was the only food in the town. The priest could have said, you know what, you can't eat this food because it's, it's sanctified and holy. You're just going to have to travel and go somewhere else. The point is, is that the temple is for man. And so the rationale behind it is, let them eat. They're hungry. It's not humane to send them away without eating. And the whole point of the temple is for man. Jesus highlights this point by saying, quoting from Hosea, if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. This is a declaration of the heart of God. This is a declaration of God's ultimate desire. He's not saying here that 
he doesn't desire sacrifice at all, or that sacrifice is irrelevant, or the temple is irrelevant, or the Sabbath is irrelevant, or the commandments are irrelevant. He's saying, my desire is mercy. That is the end. That is the ultimate thing I desire. I do not desire sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. I don't desire the temple in and of itself. I don't desire the Sabbath in and of itself. The point of all these things is mercy. The sacrifices are not an end in themselves. I don't just want you to kill animals. I give you sacrifice because of mercy. I give you sacrifice for your sake. And so mercy is the the main thing. And here's the principle. The commandments are subservient to the point of the commandments. What's the point of the commandments? Mercy. So are you going to be unmerciful for the sake of the commandments? Are we going to be unmerciful and say you can't eat for the sake of the commandments, which the point of them is mercy? So, brothers and sisters, the Pharisees are actually breaking the Sabbath by not letting men relax on it and eat. Because the point of the Sabbath is for man. It's about mercy. It's about rest. They break the temple laws by not believing in Jesus. Because there's one greater than the temple here. What does it mean that Jesus is greater than the temple? Number one, he's the point of the temple. The temple is pointing to Jesus. The temple is not an end in itself. Jesus is the end. He's greater than the temple because he's the end. And secondly, he's greater than the temple because Jesus alone can do what the temple cannot do and only represent it. And that is, Jesus alone can bring you and all men reconciliation with God. That's the point of the temple, isn't it? If God didn't love man and wasn't merciful, he wouldn't have established means for reconciling the broken relationship. The point is mercy. And Jesus alone can reconcile you. Brothers and sisters, there's no one else that can do that. As a sinner, there is a gulf between you and God. In his justice, he requires you as a sinner to be judged. And the judgment against sin is death. And so we find ourselves in a place where we deserve death. And there's no amount of good works that can save us from that. We continually sin. God so loved the world that he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins and to do what the temple could not do, and that is make reconciliation. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that you can be forgiven and made right with God. And Jesus shows the heart of God, just like the temple does in a sense, shows the heart of God, shows that in God's heart is reconciliation toward us. Jesus is greater than the temple. He also says he's Lord of the Sabbath in verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That means he's greater than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not, does not trump the Messiah. In a sense, the Messiah trumps the Sabbath. But the point of the Sabbath is the Messiah. The point of the Sabbath is the good of man. The mercy of God for man. And of course, the rest that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Consider how this title of Christ, Lord of the Sabbath, affects, how, affects our confession that Jesus is Lord. 
When we say Jesus is Lord, are we saying Jesus is Lord in sort of a vacuum, in a vacuum, it's sort of a vacuous expression? Jesus is Lord over what? Jesus is Lord of what? Well, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the temple. He's Lord of lords. He's Lord of, he's Lord of all. He's above all authority and dominion. Everything points to him, and he himself is the end and not a means to an end. But all the laws, all the commandments, the temple and the Sabbath are not in themselves ends, but means to an end, which is the revelation of the mercy of God. Jesus is our true rest. Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. And brothers and sisters, if you have Jesus as your Lord, then you need not be judged by any man or by any law. If anyone accuses you of anything, you just point them to him as your Lord. He has the final say in all matters between me and God. And if you use a commandment against me, the commandments are not ends in themselves, but means to an end for me to, to rest and find rest and peace in Christ. Jesus is greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath. Now, it's no coincidence that these two stories are next to each other, these two incidences, because they illustrate the same thing. The Pharisees also taught it was a sin to heal on the Sabbath day. In Luke 13, 14, in a different incident, Jesus heals someone in the synagogue, and the synagogue ruler stands up and protests in, with indignation, it says. And he says, there are six days of the week you can come and be healed. On the Sabbath, you don't come to be healed. He, he, he was angry, and he, he yelled to the people, you can come to Jesus six days of the week, but not this day. Again, these stories, you'll notice, are not about urgent necessity, but about the heart of mercy. Could the man have been healed the next day? The withered hand. Could he have been healed the next day? Of course he could have. The issue is not urgent necessity. The issue is mercy. Jesus looks at a man who's got a withered hand, and his heart goes out to him and says, why, couldn't, why shouldn't he be healed now? My disciples are hungry. Why shouldn't they eat now? David is hungry. Why shouldn't he eat now? The whole point is mercy. And you're not going to trump the point of the commandments with the commandments. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, come on. If on the Sabbath, one of your animals fell into a pit and you lifted it out, you, you do that, how much greater is a man than an animal or your sheep. Now, it's interesting that in Jesus' day, they did practice that. But in the Talmud, in later rabbinicism, they actually taught if your animal falls into a pit, you're not supposed to lift it out. And most scholars believe they were actually responding to Jesus and they changed their practice. So they used to lift out animals and then they changed because of this. Fine, you're right. We're not going to lift them out. <laughs> they totally miss the point that it's about mercy. They don't know God. They think God, they think that God is ultimately just a God of law and that the law is an end in itself. God gives the commandments, keep them. That's the point. That's the point of everything is to keep the commandments. That's the end in itself. They don't see 
that the law is not an end in itself, but Christ is the end. And the law points us to Christ, which is the mercy of God. He didn't know this. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Did he say give sacrifices? Yes. But he's not desiring sacrifice as an end. Remember A.B. Bruce's quote, the radical antithesis between Jesus and the Pharisees lay in their respective ideas of God. The rabbis went so far as to say this, a rabbi was asked whether it was lawful to drink medicine on the Sabbath day if you were sick. And the rabbi answered, if for pleasure, it is lawful. If for healing, it is forbidden. <laughs> You're not to do any work. If you want to drink it for pleasure, great. But if you drink it for healing, you've sinned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They missed the point, brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, stretch forth your hand. He says, it's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. Stretch forth your hand. And the man's hand was made whole right there in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus is turning Judaism upside down, or perhaps right side up. Alfred Edersheim comments, who after this will say that it was Paul who first introduced into the church either the idea that the Sabbath law in its Jewish form was no longer binding, or the idea that the narrow form of Judaism were burst by the new wine of the kingdom of the Son of Man. Basically he's saying, is anyone going to say after seeing what Jesus is doing here that it's Paul who's introducing this freedom? And who's Paul who's changing the status quo? No, brothers and sisters, it's not Paul. Paul was taking his cues from the Son of God who came and showed us that mercy is what God is all about and what the true purpose of the commandments are all about. And sadly, it's for this that they seek to kill Jesus. We have our first mention in verse 14, Matthew 12, 14, the first mention of the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. And the charge, what's the reason? Well, they would say the charge is antinomianism or the charge is that he's breaking the law, he's against the law, he's teaching radical views against the law. That's what they would say. We need to put Jesus to death because he's an antinomian. But the truth is they hated Jesus because he was exposing them, showing them that they were a bunch of corrupt people who didn't know God. And sadly, as we shall see, most of the people followed the Pharisees. And many people, if not most today, also continue to follow Pharisaic ideas of God. Now, in closing, I just want to make some brief comments on the prophecy of Isaiah that Matthew quotes. Jesus' actions and his ministry caused Matthew to quote Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4, as a prophetic summary of the ministry of Jesus. Scholars W.D. Davies and D.C. Allison write of this prophetic summary. Matthew has evidently latched on to Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, because it serves so remarkably to illustrate the nature of Jesus' ministry in Israel. Jesus is the unobtrusive servant of the Lord. God's spirit rests on him. He does not wrangle or quarrel or continue useless strife. He seeks to avoid self-advertisement and to quiet the enthusiasm that his healings inevitably create. He has compassion upon all, especially upon the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. He brings salvation to the Gentiles. Behold my servant, God is telling us all. 
He says, look, don't look to the Pharisees. Don't look to those mistaken ideas of who I am. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. Look at to my beloved. This is the one that I delight in. My soul is well pleased in him. My soul is not well pleased in the false shepherds of Israel and their notions of keeping the commandments as an end in itself. My soul is well pleased with Jesus, my son, who reveals my heart. What we've already seen just in this chapter, God is saying, behold, look. Look at what I delight in. Look at my son. You'll see me. It's in him that I'm well pleased. We see, brothers and sisters, that God delights in Christ. That is, that God delights in the one who brings us righteousness as a gift. God delights in mercy. God delights in the sin-bearing love that is shown in his Son. Jesus came into the world for us, for sinners, for men, to reveal the mercy of God, and it's in this that he delights. There's an allusion here to his baptism where God there said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and the spirit of God came upon Jesus. Matthew, where Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord will not, it says, or excuse me, before that, I will put my spirit upon him and what will he show? He will show judgment to the Gentiles. That is, he's going to show what true righteousness is all about. Righteousness isn't what the Pharisees say. Righteousness is what Jesus shows us. Absolute moral perfection. But in the light of that, mercy and sin-bearing love for those who fail. It says in verse 19, the, the, the servant of the Lord will not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. This obviously does not mean Jesus will not be a public figure or preach because we see in the Gospels Jesus being a public figure in preaching. But what this means is, in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek, the words for strive and cry are literally wrangle and clamor. I mean, he's not going to bicker, and he's not going to get his way by tantruming and yelling. He's not going to cry out against injustices or, because he feels like he's been mistreated, and so he's going to whine about it. That's essentially the, the feel of the words. Wrangle and clamor. So it's not a statement of his public preaching, but of his character. That he's meek and lowly. And when he's wronged, he withdraws. As we see, they sought to kill him, and he, he went away. This speaks of his meekness and his character. And it's to this beautiful character that we come. Brothers and sisters, there's just so much to be said about that. That just in the character of our, our God, He appeals to us. He speaks to each one of us. He calls us to himself. But if you reject him, you're rejecting a God who's so beautiful 
And he sorrows that you would reject him, but he's not going to whine about it. And it says here, a bruised reed and a smoking wick he will not quench or break. Of course, this is a figurative saying. Jesus is not literally not breaking bruised reeds. But it's talking about people. And even the Jewish scholars would understand it to be talking about weak, weak men and sinful men. People who are weak and not strong. The poor in spirit. He comes to them. Those who are strong tend to reject Jesus because they feel sufficient in themselves. They feel like they already have things together. But really, it's to those who are broken and who are basically about to be snuffed out. Have you ever seen a, a, a wick that's about to be snuffed out? These are the people that Jesus comes to and saves. He has compassion on them. All you have to do... See, Jesus is not saying you have to be strong. Jesus is not saying you have to be mighty. Jesus is just saying, trust in me. No matter if you're a bruised reed or a smoking wick, put your trust in God and in who, who God is. That he loves you. And that he'll save you. And it's through Jesus Christ alone that he shows us true righteousness and justice, as I've said, not as the Pharisees taught, but as Christ taught and demonstrated. And it's a prophetic statement that the Gentiles will believe in him. There is in this world an abundance of proof that Jesus is the Messiah because the Gentiles of the world in flocks and droves have put their trust in the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, in closing, we could not have a more wonderful Savior and more reasons to believe in Jesus. There should be nothing that prevents us from putting our faith in Him. We have so many reasons to put our faith in Him and you don't need to stay away because you feel you're a sinner. You don't need to improve yourself. You don't need to reach a certain level of maturity or righteousness before he'll have you. When we see Jesus, we see the Father full of mercy for sinful men. Man's ultimate need is not merely to eat like the disciples in the fields. Man's ultimate need is not merely for a withered hand to be healed or to have salvation. Man's ultimate need is not to have a restful day every seventh day. But man's ultimate need is to find and have salvation through Jesus Christ. For you to be forgiven of your sins and saved from death. You have broken the law and deserve death. But brothers and sisters, let it be known that there's more to God than just law. If there were, all there was to God than law, then we'd all just go to hell because we've broken the law and God is a God of law and we deserve death. God is a God of law, but he's more than that. He sent his son into the world to pay for our sins, upholding his law, but revealing his merciful heart towards us. The point of it all, and let that burn into your heart, the point of it all is Jesus Christ and the revelation of God's amazing mercy. And if the one who is merciful is greater than all, who can be against you, right? So brothers and sisters, put your trust in his mercy. Who are you listening to? Pharisees or Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. And we thank you for revealing to us that you desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Thank you for setting us free from our sins and from a law that is good but that we couldn't keep. Thank you for showing us the way of eternal life and for showing us your love. In Jesus' name, amen.